Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 46. In this episode, I talk with Joanna Christadulu, who's one of my cherished colleagues here at MGH Institute. We cover a range of topics, including the brain basis of dyslexia, the relationship between ADHD and dyslexia, labels used to identify reading problems in schools, and finally, summer slump and academic impacts of COVID school closures. After listening, don't forget to check out the website, www.seehearspeakpodcast.com, to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. Welcome to See Her Speak podcast. Today I have Joanna Christadulu. I'm so excited to have her. She is just a few doors down from me in, in our office space, and I'm excited to share her work with you. Uh, Joanna, we'll start out by having you introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. I'm Tiffany. Thanks so much for having me here. I'm so excited. I'm, um, I'm here to represent uh, the work that we're doing, my field is in developmental cognitive neuroscience, and my interest is in thinking about reading development and reading difficulties and how that translates to experiences students have in the real world, as opposed to just in our lab settings or in our research papers. Um, so I'm really always interested in having this overlap between the clinical world, the education world, and the research world to really inform how we understand the students that we work with. And I love the title of your lab. Can you tell them what it is? Sure thing. So um, it's with Tiffany at the MJH Institute of Health Professions. Um, my lab is called Brain Education and Mind Lab. The shorthand is BEAM. Sometimes we say we're the BEAM team because it does take a team and uh, many people and stakeholders to make research happen. Those people who enroll in our work, the educators who support us, the research team who makes it all work. Um, so we're um, really excited to think about the brain education and mind and put those pieces together to think about our students. You have such a great breadth and depth of work around the brain and educational outcomes. So let's dig into each of those areas. Can you tell me more about your work on the brain basis of reading as related to educational outcomes? Sure thing. So the beauty of studying the brain is it gives us another venue to understanding who we are. And in this context, we're really interested in thinking about who students are as thinkers, as learners, and as readers. And the angle that we're really excited about thinking, um, thinking through is individual differences. That's a term that we often use in the research world, but if we translate that, it means that we want to look beyond averages and look at what are the factors that might drive one student's performance differently than another's, and how can that inform more tailored approaches to supporting those students in school and at home? Um, I often think of a word equifinality equal ending as a really great summary of what I like to process and think about um, in our research. And when we think of a, a label, let's say dyslexia, which describes word challenges, either in the accuracy and or fluency of word reading, there may, may be many students who carry that label, but it, they may have different paths to that challenge. Not everyone with dyslexia is the same or has the same challenges. They all share challenges with single word reading, but there are many ways that could get you there. So even though we have this equal ending, in this case, dyslexia, we wanna unpack more about what are those pathways that get kids to those areas of challenge so we can route them to the kinds of support 
instruction interventions that best, best support them. So all that brings us to the brain science because it could really help uh, elaborate our understanding um, and the insights we get from the tools we might use in clinical and education settings like paper and pencil tests. Um, our team collaborates at MIT with John Gabrielli and his lab, where we use MRI to look at the brain's structure and function. Um, and that gives us um, the ability to think about things like, what is the neural signature of dyslexia? How does it differ in kids when they're older or younger? How is brain plasticity showing up when we have kids responding and benefiting from instruction? Uh, so the neuroscience piece helps us get deeper into the nuance of what reading is, how it literally manifests in these brains that develop the skill to read as uh, a singular amazing achievement throughout childhood and into adulthood. Um, and gives us some insights into how that's actually possible. Uh, I know oftentimes we often say language emerges um, with, with a natural inclination from birth, but reading doesn't. And so looking at the reading brain and how it actually gets constructed and sustained and, um, and maintained uh, is what we're so excited to look at every time we do a brain scan. I know so many parents uh, and uh, persons with dyslexia that have really highlighted how the brain imaging work has help them to understand their own process and to feel kind of less um, pressure because they feel like, okay, this is the way my, you know, the architecture of my brain and now I'm processing words and this is, you know, something that is a bit out of my control that I was born this way. And now I'm thinking about how to process the world and it's less of a almost like pulls the shame away a bit to say that, you know, dyslexia is brain-based. So have you seen that also when you think about saying that something is brain-based? Yeah, in fact, one of the earliest contributions of neuroscience to the field of reading and dyslexia was figuring out that actually consistently across individual, individuals with dyslexia, there was a strong, distinct neural signature that differed from their peers without dyslexia. And so as a consequence, this is in the 1990s, um, the definition of dyslexia got amended to include the phrase neurobiological in origin. And that, um, you might think, well, what else could it have been? You know, but at the time people might have thought, well, maybe it's the wrong diet and you're not eating the right things. Maybe it's you're watching too much television and that's causing something. And in fact, there are a lot of misconceptions still around the topic of dyslexia um, and the fact that we can bring the brain science to try and clarify what those misconceptions are and to correct them is so powerful. I'll say just the, one of the most damaging and troublesome uh, misconceptions is that when students with dyslexia are not performing in the classroom, it could be because they're lazy. And uh, laziness is not a clinical diagnosis. And um, I sometimes say, I don't believe it exists. I just think of it as a label that often people use when they don't have the words or nuance or knowledge to think about what else could be explaining a student's performance um, in a way that, that explains why they're not performing up to expectations. So seeing the science of dyslexia from the perspective of the reading brain um, hopefully has been a powerful uh, entry point for people to update their understanding of why someone with dyslexia may be struggling with reading. And you know, it's ironic uh, that that horrible um, misperception, which has been documented, you know, from research that this is something that is a perception people have of, and especially edu edu some educators have about dyslexia, when ironically, 
uh, you know, work you all do, it really shows that there's a more diffuse activation of brain processing. So one could argue that children with, you know, working on reading who have dyslexia are working more of their brain, you know, so that's, that's opposite of lazy. <laughs> uh, yes, I think a lot of times um, a lot of the imaging findings converge on the additional bandwidth needed for students with dyslexia to do the same task yeah. as their peers who can go into it with a lighter cognitive burden and load. Um, so I totally agree that laziness is by um, probably furthest from the accuracy. Um, you could apply to understanding our students in schools and one of the best things we could do for another human is to understand them. So if we're in a position to understand our struggling readers by having some insights as to the why behind their behavior and performance, that's a huge step forward in being able to do everything else that's helpful um, in terms of supporting them and, and, and uh, rerouting the consequences of thinking of someone as lazy. Well, you, you hit on some of the misperceptions and you have a popular paper on the myths around the brain and education. Can you tell us about some of those myths further? Sure. So um, here I'll give uh, credit to um, two stellar researchers who really love this work, Lauren McGrath at University of Denver and her lab member at the time, Kelly McDonald. So the really exciting thing about this work is we all have bubbles that we live in, whether it's the peers that we get to see every day at work or the group of people that we spend time with. And one really valuable uh, one really thing, one valuable part of studying myths is yet to see, well, what do people think? Mm -hmm. And how does that differ from what my group thinks or what I think? And it's always a surprise to people when I um, work on these myths in, in different groups of educators to see that not everyone agrees. And you get surprised to see just how distributed these misconceptions may be, even among those in your community. Um, so in this study, there were three groups, educators, um, the general public and those with a high level of cognitive of, of neuroscience exposure. And among all the myths that were asked, um, uh, we asked people, is this true or false? And we asked a range of myths. The one that uh, was endorsed uh, almost the most was true or false. Dyslexia is seeing letters backwards. Oh. Well, if you were to ask someone walking down the street, what do you think dyslexia is? That might be the most common explanation people offer. But if you're in the education realm and you endorse this, that's troublesome. And I'll, I'll explain why in a moment, but I will say 76% uh, of the public endorse this, 59% of educators endorse this, and even 50% of those with high neuroscience exposure endorse this myth. Wow. Um, the consequences of that really matter because if we think that dyslexia is about seeing letters backwards, first, we may um, flag students who tend to do that as having dyslexia when they don't. And two, for those with dyslexia who are not doing that, we would miss them. Uh, but most importantly, we're overall just allocating resources in ways that are not precise or helpful if we're basing it on something that's um, a fallacy. Um, I can use neuroscience to explain this one for a moment. Should I try to do that? Yes, that'd be great. Uh, so why do people think this? Um, there's one possible explanation from neuroscience, which is our visual system has to be tuned to recognize items as the same, no matter if I flip it or spin it or turn it around. And that allows us to operate in our world without being confused every time we change perspectives. But then we have some of our letters and they must be exactly in this orientation, this direction, because if I flip it, a P becomes a D or a B or otherwise. 
Um, so when students are exposed to print, it takes years for their visual system to overwrite this very robust rule that items can be interchanged in their positionality and stay to the same identity. And so it's, it's not unusual for students into second, maybe third grade to have challenges with their letter orientation, regardless of dyslexia. This is across the spectrum of students of all ability, ability levels. Some with dyslexia will show this, but that's an orthographic challenge that's a bit more specific. Um, and other kids will outgrow it eventually. So it is not a defining feature of dyslexia in, by any means, and it is part of the developmental procedure that you have to go through to become a reader and train your visual system in addition to all the other systems um, to tune into print meaningfully. That makes a lot of sense. I know that um, when I was recently at the grocery store and the cashier was checking me out and said, okay, you owe $158.36, but it was 63 cents. And she said, oh, it's my dyslexic moment. I mean, it's so it's so woven through the fabric of popular culture to think it's this reversal. It's really hard to get around that myth. But then, like you said, it's, it really leads us to direct our resources in a way that isn't helpful for those who have dyslexia. Right. And, you know, if we get into the nuance um, about this, this flipping example that you just offered, you know, why do people do, do that as adults even? Um, you know, sometimes it's if our attention is not tuned to the details. Sometimes a neuropsychologist might describe this, at, describe this as symbol set instability, just your capacity to hold on to symbols, whether that's numbers or sounds or letters, um, is just a bit fragile for you. And so you may, you may not be able to keep up the precision of the order or the sequencing of those items and lots of examples in your life. Um, but those are a whole different category than the story of dyslexia. Right. What were some of the other myths that you covered? Well, what was fascinating was that if you happen to endorse the myth that dyslexia was about seeing letters backwards, you tended to also endorse a, series, a few other myths. So they tended to cluster together. Mm -hmm. um, one, uh, the other one that was actually one of the most um, misidentified as true was around learning styles. Um, so whether you're a visual, auditory, or kinesthetic learner, many educators um, endorse the idea that this is research supported, which it is not. Um, so students, uh, there's no research supporting that learning styles is, a, is a, an effective route toward um, aligning students with specific instructional approaches. There's a wonderful write-up um, by Dan Willingham that really does justice to this story, where he does um, he goes into the explanation that it's not the, the case that learning styles should be used to decide if a student should hear or see or kinesthetically experience instruction. Instead, if you happen to have students exposed to different modalities of learning, then you're giving them multiple entry points and anchor points for remembering and learning information. So there might be a consequence of using learning styles that actually helps students, but it may not be for the reason that people do it. Mm. Um, so that makes good sense. Yeah, right. Um, I know that one's still really a prevalent idea. Yeah. So it's a fun one to, to really keep, keep describing and giving people the science behind it. Yeah, it seems like that's one where a lot of times, just in any myth, we look for validating evidence. So we're biased. So we always are like, see, that's I'm better at this or see that person's better at this. It's like we just validate our myth over and over until we believe it's a fact. <laughs> that's a great way to explain it. <laughs> 
Um, but the, the, the few other ones were even things like that we use 10% of our brain. So we all can make great jokes about this one. Um, and I think that myth may have, I'm not sure, but it may have come out of early images of functional scans where you only see certain parts of the brain activated because that's what the, the study is meant to show what's unique to a certain type of um, task. Um, but if we think about what our brain is used for, if, if we need it to breathe, we need it to sustain our heart rate, we need it for knowing when we're hungry or thirsty, we need it for sleeping, we need it for daydreaming, not just for the thinking or um, what seems like the visible use of our brain. So thankfully, 100% of the time while we are alive, <laughs> our brain is serving us well. <laughs> that one always never made sense to me. It was like, why would we, why would that be the case? I almost think it got perpetuated because people like to think about being able to expand their mind. So right. they felt like I have 90% <laughs> of the room to expand, you know, <laughs> room to grow. I love it. <laughs> yeah. What were some of the other ones? I just think these myths are really fascinating. Oh, this is great. I have three more that all were part of the cluster. Um, so the next one was about the Mozart effect. So many of us have seen toys or um, items we could buy on baby registries um, that really uh, promote this idea that if you have babies listen to classical music like that for Mozart, we can boost their IQs. Mm. Uh, and so this really caught uh, really quickly and really translated into lots of items and lots of uh, things you could buy and so forth. Um, so if you go back to the very original study, um, this was done with a small sample of adults who showed a very short-term boost on a specific task uh, with a subtle group difference for those who are listening to Mozart or not. But since then, there's been many years of research that have been trying to unpack that and um, to my knowledge is that, that listening to Mozart um, may do many good things for you, but um, we shouldn't be expecting that to boost IQs of our of um, the little ones who are listening to it. Wow, that's interesting. I remember when my 16-year-old was a baby, they did have the baby Mozart CDs that you could get and put it on and feel good about it. I did buy those CDs, but of course, I never truly bought into an IQ increase. I just thought, I like Mozart. That's great. But exactly. <laughs> wonderful about listening to beautiful music and getting exposed <laughs> to different genres that that part's wonderful yeah but it is it, yeah but it is and it's good to know that the myth is not true right yeah it's it, it means we can make more informed choices yeah. as to why we're doing something and decide that we're doing it for our reasons otherwise or deciding to go with the, something else so yeah. um uh, so we've got two other myths that clustered there the other one um was that was a myth that uh, was posed as, um, what do you think the effect of sugar is on attention or something like that? Mm -hmm. And the idea that uh, too much sugar is really what drives inattention in students. And that's not quite right. We Attention involves so many other things. It's not a, a, a switch, yes or no, sugar <laughs> doing, doing um, the determining of how attention is deployed, maintained, or sustained. Um, so the attention story uh, is not as simple as what someone just ate for lunch and if they had a candy bar and they're all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, and the final one was many times we talk about being left-brained or right-brained and using that as an analogy for where we might have strengths um, that we want to amplify. And that's not a, um, the way that I was posing the paper was as a, it was a myth. 
um, to endorse that as a real description of how the brain skills actually lay out. Um, in the reality of how our brain uh, performs tasks, there's so much complexity, so many networks and systems as opposed to spots or regions that are really making so many of our complex behaviors like reading or thinking possible. So while separating out skills into right or left hemisphere um, domains might feel like a really handy way to, ch to chunk the potential of the brain into categories, um, it doesn't actually reflect the way that the brain skills translate to, to um, our performance. So important to highlight these myths and it, it reminds me of phrenology. Remember the feeling oh, of yeah. the brain? What was that again? You, do you remember it's Oh yeah, phrenology exactly. Everyone's got those um, those uh, those heads with the drawn out areas that are uh, responsible for patience or frustration or whatever other category they might have had. Yeah, um, it was like your brain strength, like the shape of your skull could tell you what your personality was or your strengths and weaknesses. Yes. Um, at the time, that was probably pretty uh, advanced in thinking that this might be true. And now we can just see that there's a lot of things we've believed over time that aren't real. And it's so important to put those myths to, to bed, I guess you would say, or put them to rest so that they don't use our resources. We have such limited resources. We don't want to spend time on things that aren't, aren't right. What I love about your example is that uh, phrenology is still alive and well, especially in the um, artwork choices many scientists have in their office, because it's important to remember history uh, yes. and how we got to now. So it's, it's really great to know that in before today, yes. the best we had was people thinking this or that. And since then, we've been able to get to this point because of the advances of science and collectively all carrying that knowledge forward um, is, is such an important way to, to uh to keep updated. Yeah, that makes good sense. And it just goes to show how with science, you know, we have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, uh, not knowing all the facts and knowing what we can at the time, but adjusting our representations to account for new data. It's very tricky and, and, and it's really great to have you disseminating that information so we can make sure we're on top of it. Absolutely. Um, I don't have a good segue here, but I just want to, I'm really, you know, you have such, as I said, a great breadth and depth of research. And so I'm trying to provide the listeners a sense of, of the, each of these areas. So another area that you study is the summer slump. So I'd love for you to tell the listeners, you know, what you're finding reg regarding summer slump um, and how it's related to or not related to some of the pandemic related school closure, academic delays that we're seeing. Oh, now we are currently in the summer, which is one of my favorite seasons, um, and it's such a wonderful time to, to recharge, to refresh, to spend time in ways that you have more, hopefully, flexibility, and it's just, an, it's a wonderful season to think about in all those ways, but it, in addition, is an era to think about opportunities that might serve our students who need them the most. So first I'll just kind of go take a step back to think about terminology. So um, we often hear summer slump. We also might hear summer slide, summer regression, um, and all these summer loss even. And all these words are sort of on the more negative side. They all suggest that something's missing or lost. Um, and the, the story behind all this, the thinking about it is that you finish the end, you finish a school year, summer happens, and you start your next school year and you don't quite have the information or precision or, or strength of knowledge um, that you did when you finished the previous school year. 
um, lots of educators and parents might feel like, yeah, I've been there before, I've seen it, I know what that's like, we go through that every year. Um, and for many kids, they bounce right back and they that's what school is for. Now, summer is not meant to have the same kind of academic growth as the school year does. That's what school is for, to really boost us forward um, in ways that are purposefully directed towards specific types of learning. The summer has that has another version of learnings for, for our community members, whether that's uh, socio-emotional with their friends and peers and families um, or otherwise. So the idea of the summer isn't to keep the trajectory of your skills like reading um, as robust as a school year. The reason the summer is such an important time to think about this slump or loss is when it's a differential, when we have a disproportionality amplifying differences in the different types of students that we work with. So just to unpack that a bit, um, most of the research in summer slump has been studied from the angle of socioeconomic status. Um, this is often measured in a really coarse way by asking parents how much education they've had or what jobs they have or even what their income is if they're comfortable sharing that. And the more school or the higher prestige your job, the higher your SES, socioeconomic status score will be. And the idea is the higher your SES, the more resourced you are, whether that's accessing materials to have at home like books or having time to get tutors or even knowing the right people to ask, how do I help my student? How do I find the right person to, to route them if they need support? In contrast, on the other end of SES, we have some families from the lower end who may be working three jobs and don't have time for reading at home every night or may not access the library because it's too far or hard to get to, or they may be afraid of losing the books and don't wanna have to worry about paying for them. Um, so it turns out that when summer, the summer experience of reading had been studied from the angle of SES, um, a lot of work verges on the story that there are growing differences between higher and lower SES students during the summer, largely attributable to the kinds of things I highlighted. Um, your access to materials, resources, um, even um, the additional things like food security and so forth. Um, so the resources that families have make a big difference for how your summer experience will unfold. And that turns out to matter in amplifying the variability and differences between higher and lower SES. So our work ties into um, this really strong baseline um, to study other risk factors you may step into the summer with. So while SES has been studied, what about reading disabilities? If you step into the summertime having uh, diagnosed or not reading vulnerability, does that, does that matter for what happens at the other end of the summer? So the same things that we think about for SES mattering in the summer in a different way may matter for the, those who have reading disabilities. They may have access to books, but may not want to read them because it's not so fun or they don't know how or they don't have the right ones. Um, it's a heavy uh, financial burden to find a tutor or programming to support students' reading skills. Um, so all those reasons kind of really that can add up. So we're, we're currently doing research to try and actually look at the intersection of SES and reading difficulties and look at to what extent over the course of the summer is that impacting our students? And most importantly, what can we do about it? What factors serve as protective um, against any vulnerability toward the summer slide? And we really just look at the summer as an opportunity to step in and not have group differences amplify um, in ways that we, we can prevent or, or get ahead of. Um, so 
the summer is wonderful for all these reasons, <laughs> for, for our research efforts, as well as just for being a really wonderful season. Now, what are you, some of the suggestions you have then uh, based on the research that you're doing? Right. So a couple of things come to mind. Some of the kind of low hanging fruit sort of in, uh, things that can be done in the home setting are number one, setting aside daily time to do reading activities. Now, reading is really about seeing print and decoding it and recognizing it. And it's also about applying your oral language knowledge to understanding it. So when I say reading activities, that could, in, that could include having your, your child read aloud to you. It could mean they're listening while you're reading. That could mean having an audio book, tracking the book as you're doing it. Um, it could also, during the course of the summer, mean just building background knowledge. That's a phrase from research that in the real world just means living <laughs> and having diverse experiences. Um, but it turns out having diverse experiences means that when you come to a book about baseball, maybe you're now more familiar with what that might mean or the zoo. Oh, you've seen a zebra before. It's not unfamiliar to you. So in this way, lots of things that might happen already over the summer can serve to really grow background knowledge in ways that can support comprehension later. But time on task in the home setting is one thing. Another um, is to model reading, make it something that feels like a natural part of what happens in the household um, in ways that, um, that are important, that are highlighted, that are elevated. Um, another entry point is choice. Our students, especially those who struggle, often don't have much agency. <laughs> you know, like they may not choose to go to school and do things that are really hard for them every single day if they had the option. Um, but a, an option, giving them options and giving them agency where it's appropriate can counter that. So if that's something like, what do you want to read about today? What topic, which book, where do you want to begin? Do you want to do, um, you know, and you just list out options and give them, um, give them that agency to have some, some say in what happens and what, how they spend their time. Um, and I'll be happy to share just a whole list of resources if I can for, for your research page. Oh, great. That would be wonderful. I'm sure the listeners will really appreciate it. I just, I think too, um, I will say as a parent going from full-time daycare and opportunities, you know, consistently 12 months a year, once you have your children go to kindergarten, the summer becomes a really precarious time because you don't have that system in place. And some districts do offer summer programming, some don't. And I've noticed some of them are, you know, um, you know, quite limited and it depends on if you're a working parent. So I have definitely seen in my own experience that, you know, getting kids into summer camps, a, a lots of different summer camps, you really see that widening because it's what you can afford. I mean, I, I, I really wish that we had better resources for all children in the summer that were a bit more equivalent because, you know, if you have a lot of money, you can pay for a lot of experiences for school-age children that if you don't have the money and it's not just money, it's also just the time and resources to drive them all around to these different places there's usually not transportation it can I can really see that how it can be a huge gap uh recently I have a I have a five-year-old so he's going into kindergarten this this fall and some of my friends who have that's their oldest they're like what do we do in the summer and I'm like oh oh it's it's really hard <laughs> it's like do you have a moment to sit down because it is a process and I really wish it wasn't like that. And I don't think it's like that in other countries. So I think the U.S. has a long way to go in supporting all children in the summer. Would you agree? 
Absolutely. We've been working with several different schools and school districts to set up summer programming. Some of them didn't have anything, especially for the early grades. And we know earlier is better getting students access to the well, A, it's great for students, B, it's great for parents who are working, you know, and have, and have some, um, some comfort that their, their child is um, doing something fun and productive. Um, some of the models of the programs that we've um, co-developed with schools and districts in the area is AM is academic programming, PM is community-based, uh, more activity-based and fun. I thought the AM isn't fun, but. <laughs> yeah. That makes you know. sense though. I mean, yeah. then you get the best of both worlds. I know some of that work you're doing, uh, with schools, it's just so fabulous. I, when I heard you're doing the half and half, because then it's like you get you do still have summer, right? You know, but you also then can keep moving forward, uh, making sure it's almost like an exercise, right? Like you got to keep going. I love that idea. Yes, this idea of exercise is all about um, use it or lose it. You know, it's a dramatic way to say it, but you want to keep your fitness level as high for your academic growth as you do for anything else, because we know the consequences of stopping our January start of the gym and then July comes and we have a month. Totally. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, I think that, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to keep that fitness going, academic fitness, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. The summer is just a wonderful time to explore everything else that may not be possible during the school year, but even during summer programs um, and, and summer schools that we've worked with, it's a wonderful time to have so much more flexibility for that academic programming can look like and to have longer literacy blocks and to have smaller groups and to have um, the kinds of resources that might be harder to come by during the school year. So it would be an incredible next step for, um, for communities that don't yet have uh, systematic, accessible, free summer programming uh, for students, especially in the elementary school years, to think about steps toward supporting the development of those of those opportunities. Yeah, that's great. I look forward to having those resources for the listeners. Uh, in terms of the pandemic, you know, having school closures, how have you related some of your work on uh, summer slide to what we might expect for the pandemic, and even some recommendations for uh, reducing some of the gaps created by the pandemic? Yeah, so it's so interesting because a lot of the terminology that's used to describe that pandemic, it really just kind of carries forward the terminology we had for summer. And there are similarities between COVID slide or COVID slump and the summer story, but also, of course, lots of differences. So just to do a really quick compare and contrast, you know, for the summer, it's a consistent experience for almost every student that school ends and we have a break that's elongated. Um, and the pandemic was the same. It was a consistent experience for all of us. We all went through it. There was no getting around that. Um, and the, one of some of the major differences is we know we're going to step into summer every year. It's predictable, it's planned for, it's been around forever. And of course the surprise of COVID and the many demands on everybody to, to pivot um, in every setting was a huge burden that took a long time to figure out how, how to do that. Um, and just like in the summer, we get all of the um, influences of the outside of school environment, in other words, the home, that also was a big part of what happened during COVID. If you're a home setting that could support your, your child with technology and time and helping them, you know, stay on task and find the right chair that could, they could be comfortable in and all these things, um, that was a really different experience than families who who couldn't get the technology to work or who 
families who had to have parents still working or those who experienced uh, terrible tragedies in that time or who had um, uh, issues with uh, mental health or um, the medical system or the list is long. Um, so moving beyond that compare and contrast, um, I'll actually just highlight something a little more positive, um, which is we recently completed a study that will get published very shortly. And we asked the question during the COVID school year, the first full year we had um, during the pandemic, what predicts reading growth over time? And the specific things we wondered about is risk factors and resilience factors. So there's some really wonderful work out um, by one of your previous podcasters, Hugh Katz and others, um, that talk about this balance beam where we have risk on one side and resilience on the other. And the balance between those could really tip us in one direction or another in terms of the challenges we might be having. Um, so we would want resilience factors to counter the weight of risk factors, and we all carry some balance of, of both of those. So we tackle this question by asking, okay, so in our risk category, we're going to put PTSD linked to COVID, we're going to put anxiety and depression. All of those are risk factors and really important mental health considerations. In our resilience category, we put um, grit and growth mindset, which many people might be familiar with in addition to social awareness, self-efficacy, and self-management. So that all bundled in our resilience category. And when we asked the question, what predicts reading? Um, I should say this was all with high schoolers, all with language-based learning challenges. Okay. Um, and so for these vulnerable readers during this vulnerable time with the pandemic, um, was it risk factors that were really driving their reading scores over time? Was it resilience? And the, the ta-da moment was discovering that in fact, resilience was the, was the bundle of skills, those bundles of skills from resilience were the ones that had direct link to reading outcomes and not risk. Oh, that's great. It is great. <laughs> it's always nice to know that we have an entry point. Yeah, because we have some agency there. Yes, exactly. And the real beauty of this is when we kind of then asked what among our resilience factors may have had the strongest contribution to this story, two popped out, and those are self-efficacy and self-management. So mm -hmm. the way in which we're able to uh, regulate ourselves and manage our time and be confident in our ability to deliver, um, which by the way, are things we can train and focus on and integrate directly into school settings, those seem to be what mattered the most in how things turned out for these students over, over the course of that, that school year. Wow, that's so interesting. I, uh, that work is is really needed to help us lead to know what to do as we might face more closures, hopefully not, but as we just keep moving forward, that agency is pretty powerful. It gives us a really great place to move forward with some action items and, um, and not to be um, additionally burdened by so much of the troublesomeness of the pandemic. Um, and that's not to minimize any of the mental health um, correlates or, or burdens that students carry, uh, which of course need to be addressed as they are um, in, as they, as they are um, in, any, in any case. But um, the idea that we can impact the reading story through amplifying the resilient story is, is a really wonderful one to keep working on. Oh, that's great. Well, I look forward to reading that paper and putting it up as a resource for our readers and just continuing to learn more uh, from you as you continue to study, you know, summer slump and the pandemic-related school closures and the effect on outcomes. 
you mentioned that that paper was involving high schoolers who had learn, language learning disability. And you've done a lot, uh, you know, on thinking through, you know, the labels that are used to identify those who have reading disability, like language learning disability. Can you tell us about some of your findings about how we label children who have difficulties? Sure. So we actually did a survey for and asked educators across the U.S. Um, who who identifies reading challenges in your community and what do they call it and how do they do it? Um, so we had over a thousand people respond. We had a close to that number for the usable data. Um, and the, the challenge here is that there are different guidelines. There, there are different interpretations from guidelines offered at the federal level, the state level, and then practitioner decisions. So there are three levels that introduce potential variability and what people decide counts as a disability or a disorder. Um, so just to think about that point for a moment, um, we have to have accurate and timely identification of reading challenges because that's essential for getting students routed to appropriate and effective intervention. Um, but we don't have a clear path to get there across all our community settings. Uh, because the guidelines swing in different directions. Um, so from the federal level, what I mean is that when we look at the description of specific learning disability, um, it's it's got some specificity to it, but it's also a bit open. Um, it's describing as a student would qualify for a specific learning disability if they have an imperfect ability in thinking, reading, writing, spelling, doing math, et cetera. Um, an imperfect it's a pretty broad term, <laughs> you know, there's no oh, room for judgment there. <laughs> right. Um, and the state level, likewise, there are many approaches that people, uh, communities use to decide who counts in, as having a disability. It can be based on a discrepancy. In other words, a big gap between, let's say, your cognitive and academic skills. It could be just a cutoff score. In other words, you perform below a certain level on a norm test. It could be comparison of your strengths and challenges, and it's endless. The list has got over a dozen potential approaches that people could use. So with that messy context, you know, we um, had a couple of highlights that came out of that, that research. The first is very sobering, which is that it takes on average 13 and a half months between the time the child struggles with reading to the time that they actually have IEP-based changes wow. made to their education. Yeah. I mean, mm. many families probably can relate to that and even describe it as longer, you know, from the time yes. of introduced concerns, but yes. that's such valuable time, um, maybe not well spent right. <laughs> in delaying. Mm. Um, and then we, we also had a really interesting finding, which is when students are in K, one, two, or three, the phrase developmental delay was used way more often than the phrase dyslexia. And many communities um, use that phrase because they don't want to quite get to the diagnostic piece or uh, the, the labeling piece too early, um, mm -hmm. but that may not give the specificity needed to actually intervene with the appropriate strategies um, at, in the school years where it matters so much. Could you imagine any case in which it would be acceptable from a medical point of view to have a diagnosis or have a concern? Let's say I have a concern 
and it's 13 months later that you actually get any kind of support. (laughs) (laughs) I have to think about that a little bit longer than a moment. Uh, But no, nothing readily comes to mind. That's a huge amount of time. Oh, it really is as children are struggling. And then we have finding very similar in the clinicians I work with, just that there is a, the developmental delay is used quite a bit. And then you also see that there's just such a disconnect between a diagnosis that we might think of in research like dyslexia or developmental language disorder, and then what's used in the schools to qualify children for services and how that changes over time. It, it's really great to see your work shining a light on this issue and putting data to it so that we can really have an awareness as a point of start to make improvements. You know, I'm so excited to build on this with you and your work and to just get more information out there because if, if we know where the shaky ground is, we at least have a starting place to, to address the challenge and decide uh, how are we going to do a better job given given the, the variability that's not working for us right now. And as if you're not doing so much, you're also, you know, I really admire the work you do in policy and, and really um, helping to shape some of these policies based on the research. It's really, uh, really great to see that happening. So I appreciate your service and, you know, NCLD and, and other uh, policies across the, the world, really. Um, so I, you know, I'm being mindful of time. We've talked about lots of different aspects. I'm so grateful to share this with the listeners and the resources, but I always ask the same two questions of my guests. And the first one is, what are you working on now that you're most excited about? You know, um, among the many, and I will constrain myself as I, this is so fun to chat with you. Um, we recently got some funding to take a look at dyslexia as it relates to ADHD. And what's special about this is, you know, any, when we say dyslexia, it doesn't often occur that dyslexia is just a pure case. There's usually in a real person, lots going on. And for um, about 40% or more of students with dyslexia have co-occurring ADHD. Now, the interesting thing is, you know, we wonder, well, does that make reading worse or more vulnerable if you have both of those, um, both of those labels? So our, um, our work is exploring that and our initial findings are that no, if you are medicated um, uh, and on ADHD, if that's the, the, the route you're on, you're not reading any better or worse if you have both ADHD and dyslexia versus dyslexia. But if you then shake up that group, mix them together, shake them up and say, I'm gonna now separate those uh, students by executive function. And regardless of ADHD, ask the question, if you have higher or lower executive function, does that make a difference for your reading? And the answer there turns out to be yes. Um, Now, the biggest surprise about all this is that ADHD and executive function challenges, many people think those are pretty synonymous, Um, but it turns out only about half of students with with ADHD also have executive function challenges, not 100% as many of us might think, which means when we're thinking about our students in the classroom who may have both dyslexia and ADHD, it may be even more relevant to think about which among students in our classroom, regardless of ADHD, might be vulnerable in executive function. And just to remind everyone what that word means, when we think of our ability to formulate a goal, carry forward to deliver on it, monitor our progress and kind of sustain our efforts in that way, that's essentially what executive functions are allowing us to do. Um, So we're gonna be diving into this work um, over the next couple of years with some funding from the NIH to really tease it apart, 
build in neuroimaging findings um, and follow kids over time to really see how the story unfolds uh, developmentally. Yeah, well, I have to say, I was so excited when I saw you got that funding. Congratulations. It is such an important area of research that needs to be done and really pulling apart the executive functioning and ADHD and dyslexia. What an amazing contribution that's going to be, especially looking at longitudinal changes and the brain basis. I, I'm just, I'm going to be hanging on every word again of that one too. It's so exciting. Thanks so much. And, you know, um, we always in science, one of the best things you can do is, um, work with friends and colleagues you admire. So it's always fun when we get to work together. And this particular work is with uh, John Gabriel at MIT and also from MGH's LEAP Clinic. Oh, uh, Dr. Ellen Broughton and Alyssa Doyle. So we're so excited to work as a team all together on this. Oh, that's amazing. I am such a fan of that program too that you've been involved in. So that's, oh, that's, that's really great. I'm so glad to hear that. Uh, so the last question, what is your favorite book from childhood or now? So when I was thinking of my answer for this, I was going to say Amelia Bedelia because it's got humor and language and all those fun things. But I decided I would um, instead say a book called Educating Esme. This is a book I read at the beginning of my career that a treasured mentor shared with me. And it's the account, a diary really, of a teacher's first year uh, serving in Chicago public schools. And it is an incredible walkthrough um, this educate as many uh, experiences um, and how she uh, experiences what it's like to engage engage her passion in the reality of the classrooms that she steps into. It's a wonderful book, a really valuable um, lens, especially at any time in your career. But it was so formative to have read it early on in mind to just really stay grounded with um, what it means to translate your passion to practice. Mm. And I know you and I share the passion for working with uh, teams of collaborators that are researchers and practitioners, educators, all the stakeholders. So I look forward to taking a look at that book too. I haven't heard of it. So that sounds amazing. And I'll share it as a resource as well for our listeners. Well, Joanna, thank you so much for spending time together today. I really enjoyed talking to you. This was such a treat. Thank you so much, Tiffany. It was great to be with you. Check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.